Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Martha Shooping, MDMA, founder of the Rachel Network, giving a talk entitled The Psychological Impact of Pregnancy Loss, How Nurses, Mental Health Professionals, and Clergy Can Help. Ms. Shooping's talk was part of the Mother and Child Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. So let's start with prenatal bonding. And I know that Dr. Facello had covered some of the things about prenatal bonding this morning, but I want to cover it kind of from my perspective here. There's published literature for 70 years now that shows attachment or bonding between mother and child begins in pregnancy, not at birth. It does start during pregnancy and sometimes very early in pregnancy, even soon after conception. So I know that her research was with uh, mothers later on in pregnancy, and she wanted to be sure that she, they were far enough along that she would capture the attachment so that she could correlate that with future outcomes. But some of the newer studies are showing that even after conception, there are anecdotal reports as well as some studies that there is bonding soon after conception with some women. And bonding is not all or none. It's like, okay, now you have it, now you don't. It's more of a continuum that you can have more or less and if you Googled or did a PubMed search for maternal fetal attachment, you would find that there's, there's not studies questioning whether or not it occurs. There's studies saying, well, what can you do to enhance that? Or what conditions detract or enhance that process? So it's really, it's a continuum. And um, it occurs, maternal fetal attachment occurs across many cultures and many different countries. And so just some of the studies that I had been able to found, find when I was looking at this this is not really um, all-inclusive, but Australia, Japan, Taiwan, Israel, Turkey, Sweden, Germany, Russia, the U.S., and there's actually other countries, but those were some of the main things where I had found some research for a paper I was writing before, um, that in these countries it has been demonstrated that there is maternal-fetal attachment. And so it's not just something that you know we found out in the U.S. or something in one study, but it's, it's widespread and it's across cultures. And um, actually, one of the reasons I think that there's, there's some universal nature to this is that it appears to be at least partially mediated through the hormone oxytocin. And you know that, um, and I think from some of the other speakers too, we talked about oxytocin is produced when the woman is breastfeeding and it helps with milk letdown. Oxytocin is produced when uh, during delivery in childbirth when a woman is giving birth so that it helps her to bond to her child. Oxytocin is also released during um, sexual intimacy so that women bond to their partners. So there's different times, but oxytocin is produced during pregnancy and that has been associated with the degree of bonding that's demonstrated. And so it does start in early pregnancy. And that's probably why it's not something women can choose whether they're going to bond or not. It just happens and um, often early in pregnancy. So there was a Norwegian study that showed that attachment involves both the emotions and the body. We think about this in, in a way we're often thinking about it in a cognitive, cognitive terms where the woman is you know, doing things or saying to herself, okay, I've got to be careful because you know, I want to take my vitamins so that the baby is healthy or I need to think about baby names. And it involves her emotions and thoughts, but it also has a physical component and there was a Norwegian study that showed from 7 to 11 weeks of pregnancy, the women sensed within their bodies that they were pregnant and this bodily sensation filled them day and night. 
And one woman said, and she would, in this study, the women had an unexpected pregnancy, and they were trying to decide, would they abort or would they keep the pregnancy? And one woman said, I feel that when I was about to make the decision to keep it, it was because I felt it so strongly in my body. And if you've never been pregnant, that's a hard thing to imagine or understand. That's probably something that needs more work, but it was an interesting thing that many of the women expressed this. So maternal fetal attachment often develops even when the outcome of the pregnancy is abortion. You know, often people think, well, surely the women who are having abortions don't bond. They don't want their baby. It's unwanted. There certainly would not be bonding there, but in fact, there often is. So uh, this is an Australian study from 1996. In this study, they were surveying women at the abortion clinic prior to their abortion. And my recollection is that this was probably first trimester, although I had trouble finding that later. Um, but in Australia, they don't actually go as long, typically, as they do in the United States, because we have, we have, many, we have 100,000 people a year who are getting abortions, or more than that, getting abortions beyond the, the 12 weeks. But in the majority of other countries, even developed nations, um, European countries, and I believe Australia, it's a shorter time course. So in any case, the women at the abortion clinic having the abortion, 40% had endorsed that they had talked to their fetus. And I'm thinking if they were talking to the fetus, this was, they probably aren't thinking about it being a fetus, they're probably thinking, that's my baby. And in fact, not only did they talk to their fetus, 30% endorsed that they had patted my tummy affectionately. And so, you know, they're having some little conversation with the baby, but having the abortion anyway. Um, another study in Medical Science Monitor, again, just looking at the concept of attachment prior to abortion. This was in 2004, and actually Dr. Coleman was a uh, co-author on this study. But this was a retrospective study, look, having women look back at their prior abortion. And so it's not right at the time. And I think some of these things, you can get different numbers just because the questions are asked in different ways in different studies. You're in a different time frame. Some are at the clinic. Some are looking back. But in this case, the women, these were women in a general gynecology population. And they asked Russian women and American women, did you feel attached to the child or the pregnancy? 37% of the Russian women said yes, and 39% of the American women, yes. So again, it's a, it's a frequent thing. It's not something that's one in a million. There's a lot of women who bond to their baby but have the abortion. Um, another one that I like, this study from 2012, this was with a Swedish population at the abortion clinic. And I emailed the author to verify, and she said that um, they were pretty much all, it looked to me 97% were having a first trimester abortion because they do have a strict time limit in Sweden and you can't go much past the first 12 weeks. So 97% were within 12 weeks. And in Sweden, I found that only 30% of the people consider themselves religious or have any religious faith, and only 2% of the population have any feelings against abortion or any beliefs against abortion. So abortion is very acceptable. They're not religious, but women, for their first trimester abortion, this was in the ballpark of 500 women. I don't remember the exact number. Um, but 67% of the women gave some indications of attachment to their child before the abortion. And in particular, 67% reported that they thought of the pregnancy in terms of a child. So they weren't thinking clump of cells, bit of little tissue that they were having sucked out. They thought of it as a child. And um, they, this study also showed that attachment to the fetus was associated with decreased psychological well-being. 
And they had both a quantitative as well as a qualitative aspect to the study. And in the qualitative, one woman said, immediately when I found out I was pregnant, I felt like a mother. It felt like I had some kind of affinity with the child. And now afterwards, it feels empty. One of the women said, I lit a candle for the little one and asked for forgiveness. So I think if you're lighting a candle and asking forgiveness of the little one, that would tend to indicate that the woman felt that she had a relationship with the child. So another study, this was one that Dr. Coleman had in her slides last night. I'm going to mention some different parts of this study. But this was a study in England with women at the age of menopause looking back at the abortion they'd had many years before. And the authors indicated that they expected that if women were at the age of menopause looking back, probably they would have dealt with the abortion or maybe they'd have some positive thoughts. This helped me to get ahead in my career. I had a better life because of my abortion. Um, yeah, maybe it was sad for a moment, but really looking back on my life, it was good. That's what they probably hoped to find and what they indicated they expected. But in fact, they found that this study, the results were universally negative. Now, it's qualitative so that you can't generalize. You can't say, oh, this is the way it is for all women. But it gives you that richness of data that you can really get more in depth on what women are experiencing so that maybe we can formulate better research questions next time around. But this was Dykes and uh, Slade and Haywood, which Dr. Coleman had mentioned. And all the women in the study, it's small, but all the women reported that they continued to think about that child even decades later. Um, Jenny said, I've always thought about him, wondering how old he'd be. I do wonder about that child. And Tina said she wondered what it would have been like now. Um, Elaine said, this child of mine would have been some number of years old this month. And she was referring to the expected due date that she'd been given. And she said, I still think about that baby. I don't think I'll ever forget if I live to be 100. Um, some of the cases that we looked at yesterday, um, and I think different groups did different cases, so I'm, I'm going to quote from two of them. Uh, there were some Dutch cases that came from a book called Their Gift of Life, and it was a book of testimonies from women who'd had abortions from several different countries, and they were collected by um, a group of, of post-abortive women called Operation Outcry. So uh, these are all Operation Outcry women, and a woman named Mandy said, and we're going to come back to her a couple of times, but she said, I did not tell anyone after I missed my period. I knew consequences would immediately follow if I broke the news. So I enjoyed my little one for as long as I could. While stroking my belly, I talked to her. When I was the only one who knew about my little child, I was happy, loving the new life inside of me. And this is Ella, which was another one of the Dutch cases. When I discovered I was pregnant, it gave me an awful shock and brought me into a state of panic. After a while, I actually started enjoying the pregnancy. I suffered from morning sickness, but despite that, I was starting to bond with my child. And then the family doctor asked how I felt about it. I told him I was starting to enjoy it. And I want to mention, I had picked out the Dutch cases myself and submitted them as possible cases to use here because I felt like they gave the same kind of data that I get from my patients. When I have people come to me and they've had an abortion and they're talking about it, these are exactly what I hear and what I hear at Rachel's Vineyard Retreat. So these may be Dutch women, but it's the same experience. It's very universal. I've done abortion recovery work with women. Um, I've, well, I've trained ministry teams and done retreats in England and Scotland and Ireland and in Taiwan and Vietnam, actually. I shouldn't say that on tape, I guess, but 
Um, but I know that I know that these things seem to be universal, and we've had there are Rachel's Vineyard teams. We'll talk about that. That's a post-abortion ministry that I've worked with, but they're on every continent now, and these things are universal. But I just thought these were good cases that really tell you what it's like. And I can't read to you from my own cases like I'd have to track down women and get permission. But right here, this is similar to what I hear all the time. So this is a book, um, A Clinician's Guide to Medical and Surgical Abortion. This is a textbook written by abortion providers for abortion providers. This one was published in 1999, but it's still in use. And I want to show you about that. But in the top right-hand corner, that is the logo that the National Abortion Federation was using at that time. So just keep in mind, this is completely authoritative from provider side. And it's still listed in the 2014 Clinical Policy Guidelines of the National Abortion Federation. They list this at their website as a recommended resource. So it's still valid for counseling from their perspective. Um, so this book lists 14 different risk factors for mental health problems after abortion. They take a couple of paragraphs to give you all the different negative reactions that they think could occur, even though they think it probably doesn't happen all, you know, that much. But these, there are negative reactions that could occur, and then there are 14 risk factors that identify the subgroups of women who are more likely to have one of those negative reactions. So those are the risk factors. They call them predisposing factors in their table. And commitment to the pregnancy is listed as a risk factor for problems after abortion. And if you remember, when we looked at Dr. Ficello's slides, she had included commitment to pregnancy and attachment as part of what she would call bonding. So attachment is not identical to bonding. I use them kind of interchangeably. And I think in, unless you're specializing in attachment and get your doctorate in that, probably you think about attachment and bonding as being similar, even though they can identify some you know, more you know, subtle differences. Um, so in, that's just, I've got the citations. So if you get my slides, you'll have all the citations. I put them in there. So this is the one that actually Dr. Coleman mentioned. If you look in the lower right-hand corner, that's also got a more updated logo for the National Abortion Federation. So this is not the new edition of the old book. It's just, it's a different book. Again, telling you kind of what's current in 2009 for abortion practices. But um, the counseling chapter is different. Probably all of it, you know, it's, it's most of the same authors, most of the same editors, but it's enough different. They gave it a different title. It's not like the version two or something. Um, so in this book, it now lists 18 risk factors, and they're similar. Some of them are identical. Some of them are a little bit different. Now they're saying commitment and attachment to the pregnancy are on the list for negative emotional reactions after abortion. So it's important to understand women are bonding to their baby before they have the abortion, but that's a risk factor for having trouble later. And unfortunately, most women aren't war warned about that, and that's not really discussed. That doesn't come up in informed consent. Uh, I've never known of anyone where that was discussed with them prior to the abortion. So there was also an APA report in 2008, which Dr. Coleman mentioned, and that report identified at least 17 risk factors that I and others have been able to identify within the body of the report. They don't come up with a table and say, look, these are all the risk factors, because I don't think they want you thinking about people being at risk. But when you read the, the narrative, they're saying, well, of course we're not talking. When we say that people have a good time with their abortion, no problem, we're not talking about those women who 
for instance, had a fetal anomaly and then they aborted because we know those women wanted their baby and my goodness, they have a terrible time. And they excluded things like, um, well, we're not talking about women who have repeat abortions. We're not talking about the young women because they seem to have, if you're under 21, you're not an adult, you seem to have worse outcomes. So we're not even gonna talk about those. So they really narrowed it down until it was really narrowed down so much, they were clearly speaking about a minority of American women. They had cherry-picked the studies, so they weren't looking at all the studies anyway. And then they had narrowed down the field so that they were talking clearly about a minority of American women when they said, no problem, the risk is the same. If you have the abortion, if you have the baby, your mental health is the same. So it was a very misleading report. And if you read in their conclusion, they very, you know, there's, there's different things scattered through the report, but then if you read their conclusion, they specifically said, well, women are not at increased risk if we're talking now about an adult woman having a single abortion of an unwanted pregnancy that's an elective abortion that wasn't for medical reasons um, in the first trimester. So they've really qualified it because they know that if you're not an adult, you're more at risk. If it's a repeat abortion, which it is almost 50% of the time in America, I've seen data between 48 to 52%. If it's a repeat abortion, you're clearly at higher risk. Um, if it's beyond the first trimester, which is more than 100,000 abortions a year, you're at more risk. So there's a lot of things that would put you at risk, and they're clearly saying, no, we're not talking about them in their conclusion. But anyway, in there, they, they have risk factors too. So everybody on both sides agrees on most of these risk factors. Um, women who are committed or attached to the pregnancy or who prefer to carry the child are at risk for mental health problems after abortion. Both of those textbooks, at least nine studies that I've been able to find and the APA report all say that. And so what happens when bonding is followed by an abortion? That is bad for the woman, women, we've just said. That's a risk factor. So Rue and some other um, authors have reported that the degree of bonding that's established during pregnancy is predictive of the degree of emotional distress and trauma symptoms that are experienced after the abortion. I think that's the pivotal thing. If the woman is bonded to her child, you can expect that trouble is gonna follow. And the problem is, it's not only the bonding that takes place before the abortion, sometimes it comes later. For instance, when women give birth in their first intended pregnancy, it might be 10 years later. She's holding that baby and thinking, oh my goodness, there was an earlier baby. I should be, you know, she's breastfeeding. I've, I've had women tell me this. I was breastfeeding and I realized I should be feeding that earlier baby. Or they see the first ultrasound of their first intended pregnancy and they look at that, oh my goodness, that's what my baby looked like when I aborted that first one. And so it hits them later sometimes and um, can have very negative repercussions. But certainly if they're already bonded before the abortion, that is um, a sign that uh, they may not do well. So uh, looking at that same study by Dykes now, the qualitative study that we talked about, again, the participants described the long-term emotional impact of their termination of pregnancies as predominantly negative. So they're looking back probably 20 years later. Um, Elaine said, you know, remember she said, I'll never forget that baby if I live to be 100. She said, I was just so depressed, I didn't want to live anymore, I was suicidal, I started drinking because all I could think about is that I've murdered this baby. Now I have to say, I, I hope nobody ever uses that term, but the women themselves, I see over and over again that they're accusing themselves of that. And I thought about whether even to put the quote in, because if somebody's watching the recording, they may just 
turn it off when they hear that because that is disturbing, but many of the women judge themselves very harshly, and we need to be careful because they're judging themselves greatly already. Um, so she stated that it affected her a lot more than I ever thought it would. Well, probably because somebody said, oh, you'll be fine, you'll have another baby later, you know, you're doing the right thing. No, there's no problems, there's no side effects. So she probably heard that kind of information, which is why it affected her a lot more than she thought it would. Um, Mary in this study said, um, and I'm, I'm going to point out some of the negative things like guilt and grief, because we're gonna see that in a later study that we'll come back to, but anyway, um, there are specific comments they make that show up different symptoms. Um, Mary said, as I've got older, I feel guilty and more aware of what I did. I think about it more now. And she said, I must be a bad person all them years ago to do what I did. Barbara said, I feel some guilt, you know, because it's like taking a life, isn't it? This is shame. And there are a lot of, I could have pulled 50 quotes, but Anne said, it's haunted me, to be honest. I'm ashamed. I think it's just something else I have to hate about myself. So you really do in Dyke's study, as well as other studies, we could find quotes from women showing the shame and self-hatred. Claire said, okay, this is intrusion. An intrusion would be things, I think we heard about some with Dr. Coleman. When you have post-traumatic stress disorder, there's several symptom clusters. And one of the big clusters is intrusion, where the memories come even though you don't want them to. And they may come in nightmares when you're asleep. It may come in the form of a flashback, or it may just be intrusive memories. While you're trying to take an exam at school, the memories are coming back. You killed your baby. Um, you know, you're thinking about this, or you're just remembering the abortion. You're there again. So um, Claire said, I'll probably have nightmares the rest of my life. I hate myself so much. But that's an example of intrusion. So intrusion is when the memories come back and you don't really want them to. You're not trying to think about them, but there they are. Um, grief. Ella was one of the Dutch women who had bonded to her child. She said, the grief is still in my head and heart. Men do not understand this great grief as they have not carried the child. Ella also said, again, guilt. Um, I felt as if I was a murderer. And in fact, I still have that feeling. I will never forgive myself for what I did. I have taken the life of somebody, which makes me a murderer. And again, I have to apologize for even saying this. I don't like that being said, but I'm just showing you the women themselves are judging themselves very harshly. And that shows when we're talking about guilt, this is what we're talking about. When we talk about a need for ministry, this shows you this is a need for ministry. So loss and emotional numbing, and many of the reports make a distinction between loss and grief, although they're certainly related, but this shows loss and emotional numbing. And, um, sorry, the thing is uh, getting away from me. Okay, sorry. Um, so Mandy was one of the Dutch women, and she said, I love my children, but it is really hard to enjoy them. And she actually said that a couple different times, and I just put in the one quote, hard to enjoy her children. It also does not feel complete. One is missing. I also have the feeling I snatched something away from my children. Now that's actually true that siblings sometimes, if they find out about the abortion later, they feel that they've missed out and they feel grief at having lost a sib. Although sometimes they, they just have a feeling that something's missing and they don't always know. When they find out, they say, oh, that explains how, how I was thinking about this or how I was feeling. Um, but the, the emotional numbing would be the difficulty enjoying the children and that loss is feeling that something is missing. Um, so suicidal thoughts also after abortion. Ella said, I would like to drive into a brick wall knowing this would give me rest. 
where Mandy actually did make a suicide attempt, which is not unusual after abortion. They do have an increased risk of suicide. She said, last year I took an overdose of medicine. I took the picture of the scan in my hand, and the only thing I said was, mother will be with you soon. The world is really better off without me here. I'm going to my child, and then I can still do something good in my life. I took all my medicine and sat down on the floor with a picture of the scan in my hand. I think she's talking about her ultrasound. But then I thought, what am I doing? She phoned her doctor, an ambulance was sent, and then she was in a coma for two days, but obviously lived. Um, I put here a 650% higher risk of death from suicide after abortion. And that was shown, that exact percentage was shown in one study. But um, Mika Gissler was someone who did a lot of work with this in, in uh, Finland. And they had like national health data so they could get the medical records. He also looked at, or they also looked at um, the actual death certificates to find out who had a suicide uh, and looking at all the, the deaths and then tying them to the medical records so they could see if there was a pregnancy event during the same year as the suicide. And then he looked for, for a longer period of time. Anyway, um, the data in the slide that Dr. Coleman showed, they had showed it was actually six times higher if you're comparing um, women who gave birth compared to women who had abortions. And so um, six times higher, um, but either at some stage with their data, when they were looking, it was published in one place as 650% higher risk of suicide. And David Reardon did research that showed, in Reardon's research, um, the, risk of, the increased risk was not quite as high, but he demonstrated using California Medicaid data that the risk persisted for eight years after the abortion. And it didn't just stop. It's not necessarily that the risk stopped, but they, they stopped the study at that point. They had records for a certain period of time, so they could see that the, the risk continued for eight years. And in Reardon's study, they did control for prior mental health, whereas with um, Gissler, my recollection is that they did not. And so that was a complaint about Gissler's work, and Reardon rectified that by going longer and doing the mental health control. Um, to the extent possible, they controlled for like one year of prior mental health because just with the data set they had available, that's as far as they could go with it. But if abortion is so difficult for women, why do so many go through with this? Pressure. This is Ella saying, my mother did not want to see me during that time and she did not want to influence me. My family-in-law knew exactly what was best for me. I was to have it taken away. It really would not hurt because my boyfriend pressed me. I decided to make an appointment for an abortion. So that's Ella. Here's Mandy. My boyfriend did not want the child. My boyfriend did not change his opinion in, with regards to my pregnancy. I was to have an abortion. So the boyfriend has made the decision. As I loved him so much, I did not want to hurt him. And part of the story was he had an ex-wife. He had visitation with children. If he had another children by a different woman, would his ex-wife be spiteful and not let him have visitation? And there were, there were a lot of different considerations, and she didn't want to mess up his life, so he wanted the abortion. She was going to do it. And, but she said, yet even then, I knew it would be over between him and me if I were to go through with it. And there is data that there are increased communication problems, increased breakups of relationships, increased breakups of marriage, increased sexual dysfunction also for men and women when, it, when an abortion has occurred. So here she's already saying it was going to be over, and she knew that. If she, if she had the abortion, she would do it to please him. 
but she wouldn't feel the connection to him if she's if her baby is being rejected. So, and that happens. So, Mandy, here's pressure at the abortion clinic. Now, that was pressure from the boyfriend, pressure at the abortion clinic. Mandy first had an ultrasound, but then after she had the ultrasound, she was supposed to make the appointment for her abortion. And so she's there at the hospital or clinic, wherever they do it there. And she said, during the making of that appointment, I collapsed. And in the story, she tells she couldn't even walk, actually. She just collapsed. She says, I cried and cried. I said, this I do not want. It is murder. For two hours, I sat there. Okay, for two hours, she's at the clinic. And what's happening? Two women talked to me, explaining that it was better to carry through with the abortion. A doctor joined, and he too said, it is better to have it done. The father does not want it. I was not to think of myself, not to be selfish. And this is the new line that's been going around at least for the last 10 years, because American women tell me this too. They've been to the clinic and people say, don't be selfish, don't just think about yourself. You think it'd be nice to have a baby, but look at your boyfriend, he'd have to quit school. Look at the father of the baby, he'd have this and that. Your in-laws, your parents, I mean, look at this. You're just inconveniencing everyone. Don't be selfish. So she was told, don't be selfish. When I finally got the strength to get up and leave, after two hours of being hammered by these people, I felt broken. So, pressure and coercion. There are studies that show, yes, coercion takes place, and that's a risk factor for further problems after abortion, but studies are all over the map that some studies say, well, 11% in this group. And another study, Ruth's study, found 64%. I tend to think that's true, just based on my own experience of what I see and hear from women. Um, but we don't know, 11 to 64%. If it was 11% of abortions that were coerced, that would mean that more than 6 million abortions in the U.S. have been coerced since 1973. And I think partly it's how you define it, how strictly you define that term. But really, you know, because you can ask the question in different ways. And somebody say, oh, no, well, I wasn't really coerced. I didn't want the, you know, like, and sometimes in conversations, people will say, well, I didn't really want the abortion, but I knew my mom wanted me to do it, and my boyfriend. So, I mean, there's pressure that's brought to bear, but I think it's a continuum. And that's actually what we decided in that task force within Division 48 of the American Psychological Association. We felt, and we put in our paper, that we believed it should be treated as a continuum and not trying to split hairs. Well, was it really pressure or was it really coercion? You know, the bottom line is, did the woman, did the woman feel like she had a free choice? Was it her decision? Or did she let other people make that decision? Or was it actually forced upon her? Because I happen to know a woman who at age 17 had a forced abortion where she was sedated and restrained and had an abortion she did not want after she told the doctor and the nurse, I do not give consent for this, I want my baby. She was engaged to be married, but she was sedated and restrained and had the abortion because her mother had signed for it and paid for it. And that happens too often for young women. And um, we'll get back to that in a little bit. But anyway, if only 11% were truly coerced, that would be more than 6 million abortions. So a lot of women have had abortions. It's supposed to be a choice. And it's often, David Reardon calls it an unchoice because it's the choice that many times people don't make, but they have one anyway. Um, so perceived coercion, in those abortion provider textbooks, they use the term perceived coercion as what the risk factor is. So it doesn't matter really if we stand back and say, oh, that wasn't really coercion, or yeah, I can see it there, that was probably coercion. It doesn't matter what we think about it, 
does the woman feel she's being coerced or does she feel like it's really her free decision? That's a different thing. Um, so 11 to 64%. Um, here's, this was produced by David Reardon. Like most women, Mary didn't want an abortion, but her husband can be very persuasive. And I put that in there to show that domestic violence can have a role in these decisions that get made. And um, there are cases in reports of batterers beating the pregnant partner's belly. And so the force of attack, they're not just hitting you in the head or hitting you in the arm, they're punching you in the abdomen or pelvis to try to kill the baby or hurt the baby. That that, that happens today. And um, I think this is somewhat of a new thing within recent decades. I don't think that happened so much in the past. But again, the studies are all over the map. And one of the things we recommend in our report, uh, which we're hoping that will be published, we don't know yet, um, we're recommending that there should be more research to better quantify how much are these things happening. Because our focus was the violence against women. How often are women being influenced by violence in their abortion decisions? So the estimates have been, and in, of incidents have been from 1.2%, not so much, up to 51%. And definitely we need, but there is definitely, there's been a lot of studies, even from kind of mainstream sources and feminist sources, uh, studies about intimate partner violence and the association with abortion. But um, the true incidents, we don't know. So there, there has been, but we suspect that it's a big problem because this study by Horn and Cheng from 2001, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, this showed that in Maryland from 1993 to 1998, the number one leading cause of death among pregnant women was homicide. And you can imagine if they're pregnant, maybe the reason that this happens, maybe they don't want to have the abortion and the boyfriend or husband does want an abortion. And we know that there are cases that, that are that way. But the data shows that's the leading cause of death. And you think about it, a pregnant woman, if you're healthy enough to get pregnant in the first place, you're young, you're healthy, you're not likely to die of something. You're too young to have a cancer. And if you were really, really sick with something bad, you wouldn't get pregnant. Your body wouldn't let you get pregnant. So there's not a lot of things that are going to kill a woman during pregnancy. But homicide, yes. And today, in Maryland, 20% of all pregnancy-associated deaths were homicides. So then uh, Chang and colleagues did another study showing that homicide was a leading cause of deaths throughout the United States during the decade 1991 to 1999. So they're showing it's a big problem. Yes, Priscilla. Uh, I think the data indicate that one third of women who have an abortion clinic are currently involved in a domestic violence situation. And so those providers, if they have any ethics to them, they would be screening for violence. They should be screening for violence. Mm -hmm. Well, and what, after Chang, they did a study, um, Horn and Chang came back and did another study showing how all that violence is underreported, actually. So there is a lot of underreporting. So even what you're saying with the one-third of the women at abortion clinics, it could actually be more than that because they were explaining, it's just like the abortion deaths, how they don't get reported in this country. A lot of things don't get tagged as they should. And um, so the true incidents could be a lot higher, actually. But yeah, a third, that's good, thank you. Um, so yeah, they should be screening. This is an example of a case. Um, a man in Broward County, Florida, convicted of two counts of murder because um, his pregnant girlfriend uh, 
eight months pregnant, would not have the abortion like he wanted, so he shot her in the head and the abdomen, and particularly when she refused to have the abortion. So that's a case from 2009. And in London, England, there was a case of a woman escaping. She was, again, it's under pressure, under coercion, that she was taken to an abortion clinic. She was able to escape. And uh, it said that she jumped out of a ground floor window, jumped three fences to get away, and then showed up at a pro-life center to get help. So good counsel network, I know those people, and uh, she got help there. So again, with forced abortions, there are a couple of centers that will help women who are in that situation. And I think it's good for anybody to know about that, to know um, this one, Texas Center for Defense of Life, defended a 16-year-old girl who was suing her parents. The mother had said she would put RU486 in her food or drink and she would have an abortion. And she also threatened violence. The mother threatened violence against the boyfriend. In the end, um, the girl got away with, to stay with another family member and sued and the court ruled to protect the young woman's right to make her decision to carry the child to term. Um, there's also a Center Against Forced Abortion, and I would say if you just remember in your mind, Center Against Forced Abortion, and you can Google them anytime, they have a dear parent letter, a dear doctor letter, so that if you have a young woman who is in, at risk for having a forced abortion, she can get that letter to give to the parent or to the doctor, which shows that it's illegal in all 50 states to force someone to abort against their will. And it's actually, the anyone doing that would be vulnerable to both civil and criminal uh, action. So you, the, the doctor, for example, if he did a truly forced abortion, like happened to the woman I mentioned, um, they actually could be sued and they could do jail time, prison time for that. Um, but people don't know that and it does happen. I know other cases besides that one. So researchers from both sides definitely agree, women who are coerced or pressured are at increased risk for mental health problems after abortion. And I've been able to find, because of the literature review that we did with that committee work I was on with the task force, I've, I've got at least 20 studies in a bibliography now, and it's in both textbooks and the um, APA report, and there was uh, the American Medical Association had a, uh, their Council on Scientific Affairs had uh, a statement about that. Nobody thinks coerced abortion is a good thing, but it does happen a lot. So this is an older study by David Reardon, and he was surveying women who, um, they were already in a support group called WEBA that no longer exists, but it's women exploited by abortion. It was one of the, the earliest peer support groups for women who'd had abortions and were trying to find help at a time when there really wasn't a lot available. He surveyed WEBA women from, I think, every state, and um, I wanted to just, again, to give you a picture of what women are experiencing when they go into the clinic. So he asked them on a scale of one to five, with five being very much, one being not at all, they asked the question, were you encouraged to have an abortion by your abortion counselor? And 48% said very much, only 10% said not at all. So the counselors are doing steering women toward abortions, they're not taking a neutral approach. And then the role of others with, in the abortion decision, Women reported being encouraged to have the abortion by parents, family members, husband, boyfriend, social worker, abortion counselor, doctor, friends, and others. And so Reardon asked them, would your choice have been different if any or all of the above had encouraged you differently? 76% 76, 76 said yes very much. And then another 7% gave it a rating of four, saying that you know, to a significant extent, yes, and so that would be 83% right there. So a very large 
large majority saying that if someone else had stood by them and encouraged them, they would have made a different decision. Only 4% said not at all, that it wouldn't have mattered. Um, again, with, with lack of information at the clinic, they asked, or lack of exploration, I guess, lack of counseling, did the clinic doctor or counselor help you to explore your decision? Did somebody sit through and help you think it through? What do you really want? Let's just, you know, get the others out of the picture. Let's sit here, think about what do you want? And looking at three, four, or five, which would have been, yeah, they did help me, 0% gave an answer for that. And 85% said not at all. So Dr. Coleman had some information last night about the poor quality of counseling. This shows, and I guess I should mention, which I hadn't thought about, but um, I was an abortion counselor back in uh, 1973, the year that Roe came about. And I was an, an undergraduate, still in my teens at that time. I had one evening of training, and I was an abortion counselor. And back then, I was taught there were no side effects from abortion. So there wasn't a lot to do as far as being an abortion counselor. It was easy because there was no side effects. It was easy, and you know, it was quite a simple thing. And I didn't do that for very long because I felt I was not prepared to do the thinking it through with people. Um, they hadn't prepared me to do that. They pre prepared me to make a referral for an abortion clinic, and we called it abortion counseling. But um, in any case, even today, like here, you all have a master's in counseling at this university. And today, in all 50 states, there are licensing laws that you have to have a master's degree, pass a national exam, you have criteria for being a counselor. But back in 1973, zero states had licensing laws, so anybody could be an abortion counselor. And when these clinics were getting started, you know, they could take, um, you know, even if you're an undergraduate here, if you thought you wanted to help women's rights and this was a good thing, you could get a job being a counselor and you didn't have to have qualifications. And that still stands at the abortion clinic. So there have been cases, I think in the Stacey Zally case that Dr. Coleman testified on, the counselor in that case was a high school dropout. Is that not correct? Okay, I'm going to say it for the mic, that that's very sad that the counselor in the case of Stacy Zally was a high school dropout and committed suicide after she was named in the lawsuit. So it's very sad, but they're not prepared. Clearly, they're not prepared to do genuine counseling. I can't call it counseling today because it's not counseling. If it's not a licensed counselor, they have no training. What are they doing? It's not counseling. So anyway, um, do you believe there was information you were not given or you were misinformed about? 73% said yes very much. 10% said not at all. So again, lack of information, lack of counseling. Under better circumstances, would you have kept the baby? 81% said very much. And 1%, only 1% said not at all. So, you know, I think it's up to us to remember that we can help make the circumstances be better because all those women, 81%, would have kept their babies if circumstances were better. So why can't we do that and make circumstances better? Anyway, um, I want to show you a study now because I was going to try to cover the whole spectrum looking at miscarriage versus abortion and what women experience. And I think Dr. Coleman had mentioned uh, Brown and colleagues had done a couple of studies and this is the 2005 study and they looked at women and surveyed them after either after their miscarriage or after their abortion at four points in time. And the first point was within the first ten, like 10 days after pregnancy termination then at six months, at two years, and at five years in this case. So in this case, there was some anger after the abortion, but it was not statistically different between miscarriage and abortion, and it doesn't look like it was a lot. 
In individual cases, it can be a lot. You might be angry with God if you had a miscarriage. Why would God allow this to happen? You could be angry. Um, you know, I see people be angry after the miscarriage because, well, people shouldn't say such stupid things like people will say, oh, well, you'll have another baby, or, what? you know, it's God's will. And you just say things that, you know, people have anger, that you, you haven't said the thing that would be supportive to them in the, the way that they would like to be supported. So they could be angry that way. They could be angry the doctor didn't answer my phone call when I called. If he had just been there, we would have done this. Or they can be mad at themselves, like, why did I go horseback riding? So women who had miscarriages may be angry. And women who had abortions, they may be angry if they were pressured, although they're more likely if they were coerced, they may be feeling the grief and shame and guilt and so many other things they don't know they're angry. So, but again, the anger on average was not high and it was similar for both groups in this case. Although that's something, when you get to the healing process, that's always something we look for and try to help because often there are people who need where you want to forgive that other person for part of your healing process. So anxiety, in this case, the women who had miscarriages were similar to the women who aborted as far as anxiety. There were no statistical, no statistic, statistically significant differences between those two groups, but if you looked at both together compared to that baseline, which is green, which is women who did not have a pregnancy loss, there, it, it is statistically significant that, that both groups are higher compared to women without the loss for anxiety. Um, and that was all the way through for the five years. Avoidance is something where it was clearly much different, much higher for women who had the abortions. And that is a symptom of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. We mentioned intrusion, but avoidance is you really try to pull back and avoid anything that reminds you about that abortion. So somebody says, oh, well, you, you ought to go see this counselor. And they think, no, I don't think I'll make that call because they want to avoid thinking about it. If they can just not talk about it, not think about it, maybe it'll go away, and yet maybe they get that intrusion anywhere and they're having nightmares at night. But here, avoidance, that was statistically significant. It's a big difference between the post-abortive and the miscarriage women. And one of the things is that hurts their healing process because if they don't want to talk about it, they won't be able to heal. They can't go to a priest. They can't go to a counselor that's going to hold them back, and it makes it more likely for the pain to be long-term and not, not be as easily resolvable. Um, intrusion, the, the women who had the miscarriages actually had higher intrusion compared to the uh, post-abortive women at the first measurement, and it was statistically significant. After that, you can see they kind of track together, and it's fading out. It's not getting back to normal, but it's getting it's improving substantially over the, the five years, and they are staying together. So that's a similar thing. Um, grief, this was higher initially for the miscarriage women. The other thing to keep in mind, though, is that some of the post-abortive women, they may not even initially be having the grief. They may not have that grief until they have their first intended child, or until later they're dealing with infertility, and they start thinking, oh my goodness, like I know a woman that I was talking about with my sister on the way to this conference, and we're remembering how people told her, oh, you'll have another baby at another time. Don't worry about it. She had it at a young age, but she tried and tried and never, you know, now she's probably at menopause, and she's never been able to get pregnant. So she's had her marriage. She's had stepchildren who were older, stepchildren in their teens, but she never had a baby of her own to love and care for. And that was a great sense of, of grief and loss for her. So sometimes that does come up later, but certainly at the beginning, at the front end, the grief is higher 
with the miscarriage women, it is statistically significant and higher than the aborted, the post-abortive women. And eventually, by uh, the five years, they're coming together. It's not at zero. It's not at the bottom, but they're having some. So loss, again, this is statistically significant and higher for the miscarriage women compared to the abortion, the women who had abortions. Um, with guilt, higher for the women who had the abortions and statistically significant all the way through. Shame, there's still more shame even at um, five years and it is statistically significant for the post-abortive women. Quality of life, that's actually not different between, not statistically different, between the women who had abortions and miscarriage. Um, it, you, the higher scores are better. You have better quality of life. So as they get five years out from the abortion, you can see they have higher quality of life compared to right at the time of the pregnancy loss for both groups. So Curley and Johnson, this was in 2013. I thought this is a good study to know about because in particularly on a university campus, um, they had 150, 151 women from three college campuses. 89 had abortions. And every one of the women who had abortions reported symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder and grief that had lasted on average for three years. So it could have been that they were 15 years old, they had their abortion, now they're in college, they're 18, they're still struggling with that. Or maybe they were 17 and now they're you know, a senior or something. But it was on average three years that they were um, having the grief and the PTSD symptoms. Of those women who had those symptoms, more than half of them said that they desired treatment. And the ones who desired treatment had higher scores for grief and um, post-traumatic stress compared to the other group. So it's interesting, these were on, a, on secular campuses, um, McGill University, Concordia University in Canada, and University of Vermont. So secular liberal campuses, and yet women are struggling with this, and there's no help being offered on campus. So there's another, um, Curley had kind of lined out um, a series of studies, and in her series she was going to ask them what types of things would you want as far as what models would you be interested in. Do you want a weekend thing? Do you want a support group? And she was going to ask them what they desired for the desired treatment and then actually try to implement and study that. So that's kind of all in progress. Um, Kirsting is one that Dr. Coleman mentioned last night, and I just want to point out this was in the case of fetal anomalies. And so with those abortions, probably they've had, they were intended pregnancies by and large. They were probably carried longer. And then you find out about this abnormality. They abort, and it was found that two to seven years later, there was no decrease in grief um, or trauma symptoms. It was the same as if it had been 14 days. So there was no, no let up. Uh, and that's certainly with the fetal abnormalities when those women abort, they don't do well, it's a very difficult recovery. I've worked with some of those women, very difficult. So many women are seeking out faith-based abortion recovery programs, and I think this is, there's a lot of women, perhaps 100,000 a year in the United States, who are not getting into the insurance company databases or the health center databases because they're just not even going to get their abortion issues treated in the health system. And part of that is they may not want it on their record. When I was um, recently in Canada, I was helping some Canadians to start up a a, a, an abortion recovery retreat, and um, I was taking some of the phone calls to do their screening on their clients, 
And one woman said, well, nobody from Eastern Health is going to be there. Well, that's my health service, and I don't want anybody to know. And this probably was a woman who had paid out of pocket for a private abortion to keep it off her record. And that's what most people do up in Newfoundland. They want to keep it off their record, so they go privately instead of in the government system. But then she also didn't want the abortion recovery process to be in the system either. So she couldn't go to a counselor. She was going, she was going to consider the Rachel's Vineyard. And a lot of women, there are many reasons why they might go to a faith-based program. But in any case, that's what I'd like to look at now. Um, women seeking faith-based programs in the Catholic Church, because we're a Catholic group here, um, Project Rachel is the U.S. Uh, bishops outreach. The USCCB has their official outreach to post-abortive women, and this operates in almost every diocese. It will utilize a range of programs from individual counseling to support groups, retreats, prayer services. So there's going to be a lot of options available, and it depends on what the local teams want to do and what the local bishop prefers. Um, but they can re provide re referrals to priests and professional counselors who are trained to help with abortion issues. And really, how Project Rachel got its start they were trying to do trainings for priests and professional counselors so that they could have um, people could dial in and get a referral. And since then, they found that maybe just the one-on-one -on -one is not everything that you know that you should maybe have more options than that because people need and desire more options. So Rachel's Vineyard is the largest organization in the world dedicated exclusively to abortion recovery. And in many cases, those Project Rachel's at the diocesan level are choosing to adopt Rachel's Vineyard as one of their outreaches. But Rachel's Vineyard has a copyrighted, trademarked manual, and you have to get trained in that method to be able to use it. And it is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. So it's Project Rachel that belongs to the bishops, and Rachel's Vineyard that's a separate organization, but it's used widely within Project Rachel. That's their logo for Rachel's Vineyard. And with Rachel's Vineyard, they've got that motto, healing the trauma of abortion one weekend at a time. They offer weekend retreats in 49 states, more than 70 countries on six continents, and in 23 languages. So it's been everywhere. There are two separate manuals. There is a Catholic manual that has an imprimatur, and there's a Protestant manual that's been reviewed by Protestant pastors. And I've trained clergy and, and teams for both ways. Um, the Catholic retreats will always include Catholic sacraments. There will be mass. There will be availability of confession. Very often there will be adoration. And um, the USCCB's Respect Life Office, has they consider Rachel's Vineyard as a recommended resource. So they're fully um, okay for people who want to use them. And um, Rachel's Vineyard always uses a team approach that will include, on a Catholic retreat, it would be a priest. For a Protestant retreat, they would have a Protestant minister. There would always be a mental health professional and lay volunteers who are often peer counselors. They typically have been through an abortion themselves, have been through some healing, and they're there to be a support and help. Um, in Rachel's Vineyard, a husband and wife can participate together if desired, and that can help to heal the marriage. If, you know, on one retreat I went to, it was actually a patient from my practice who'd had an abortion as a young woman. Her husband never tried to stop her. He thought if he loved her, why wouldn't he say, no, you can't abort my baby? But he thought the right thing to do was like he's supposed to be quiet and let her make her choice because in our society it's supposed to be her choice. So we were both very sad and hurt about this because he's thinking, if she loved me, why would she go and kill my baby? And she's thinking, if he loved me, why wouldn't he stop me? 
and they just they never talked about it and so now their grandparents you know they've had their kids they've had their grandparents and they finally came to a Rachel's Vineyard together and they're like what you thought that I had no idea and they're talking to each other and grieving together and healing together and so it can be beautiful and really make a difference for marriage ideally they shouldn't wait until their grandparents they should do it soon you know but um, nobody knew to make that referral so um, a, a man or a woman can attend individually by and large it's more women than men typically as long as I was doing retreats we'd almost always have at least one man on the retreat but they would be 10% or less it might be one man and 15 women um, but any and anyone can take a support person like if the woman wants to have her mom come with her or if she wanted to have her sister or somebody like that they could have someone else but there's also a memorial service on the last day and that's a time when women can invite a guest maybe they went through it on their own but they're like you know what I really want my sister to come and they can so one thing I want to point out about the benefits of group programs there is research that women under stress benefit from tending and befriending which is a reason that group programs like Rachel's Vineyard can be so good um, and what this is um, basically we always know about that fight or flight model which was really studied and developed in men that if a man has some kind of really scary challenge either they've got to run or they got to fight it out and for women they want to tend their children and you know make the cupcakes or do something nice spend time with their kids or sit down and have coffee with other women and traditionally if you think back like at least in my generation moms in the neighborhood when I was growing up didn't work and they could you, you know people have coffee together and when you're stressed that's what women actually gravitate to and there's data on that so I think that's you know that that's something we well the bad thing about abortion is that their baby is not there their baby is gone and tending children becomes a painful reminder so we've taken that away from them if, if they have other children that's not necessarily something they enjoy as much as they would and they don't have the baby they lost is the baby that's distressed for them and their baby is gone and they don't have other women to talk to because they had to have the abortion to keep the secret and so they're very isolated so when you give them Rachel's Vineyard they actually do get their children back in a sense and they get sisters in that community that they can share with so um, this book that I wrote the four steps to healing was co-written with my sister Debbie McDaniel and um, it's available in both a Catholic and a non-denominational edition the reason I wanted to see this book come out was that there were women in my practice and women I knew who were too fearful to go to Rachel's Vineyard I really believed after I started doing Rachel's Vineyard I thought this is the best this is the best thing I've ever seen even though I consider myself a reasonably good therapist I was finding people where I was not able to help them adequately in the office they were amazingly transformed when they went to a Rachel's Vineyard and so I just felt like this is a good program that's where people need to go but not everybody will and so this allows people to begin to heal in the privacy of their home and it says four steps to healing um, I'm going to just quickly go through four steps that I think are key and if you ignore one of them there's a good chance that the women you're helping will not fully recover now there are women who didn't bond to their children and they don't want to talk about babies but the women who come to me by and large I was seeing Christian women and 70% of the American public still self-identify as Christian so if you're seeing Christian women and if they start to talk about you know that they wish that their baby was with them then you know that that's okay that you know you you have to be careful because sometimes if baby is a stress for them they don't want to go there 
but you listen to them and follow where they are. But in the retreat, it gradually unfolds. And in the book, we, we help them step by step. So um, I got my idea originally from Sister Paula Vandegar, who wrote about this in 1987. And she said these four key areas were the relationship with God, baby, self, and others. So that's where I got this. And I think that's true. And you'll find these elements in most of the faith-based programs. Now, if you had a secular woman, and if you looked at what the secular books say to do about this, it would be, you know, get their mind off it, distract them, join a bicycle club, get out with other people, and there's, they don't deal with pro-choice women in their treatment protocols do not address the baby issues. And if they address the God issue, it's more like, oh, well, God will forgive you because he's merciful, so you don't have to worry about that. But they really just try to focus more on distraction and telling yourself you did the right thing where this is a different approach. Many pro-choice people don't value this approach, but for some women, if they, if they believe they acted against their own religious beliefs, they may very well be thinking, which women say to me, they may be believe that they committed the unforgivable sin or that they are permanently excommunicated. And in the Catholic Church, nobody is permanently excommunicated. The Catholic Church has a way back. And, but again, for women who did violate their beliefs, who have a personal faith, they need to reconcile with God. For women who bonded to their baby, they surely need to address that, to address the grief of that loss. They also will have issues with themselves. You think about the shame and self-hatred we were hearing with those women, they're gonna to need to address that. But they may not be able to address that if they believe that they've already committed the unforgivable sin, the baby is permanently lost, how are they going to feel better about themselves? So it's like a context, and you kind of go back and forth. It's not linear, like, okay, first we do God, then we do this other, but you go back and forth a little bit and, and help them to ease through these different areas. And then the others, because if your mother said, all right, I'm not paying your tuition unless you have that abortion, and I'm not taking care of that baby, or if your dad said, well, where are you gonna live when you have that baby? Or the boyfriend said, I will never love that baby. Or the boyfriend said, um, we're breaking up if you don't have that abortion, or the boyfriend threatened to shoot you. You know, if you've dealt with that, there's some anger and some feelings about those other people. There's a whole package of things to deal with. So, um, reconciliation with God, the Rachel's Vineyard Retreat takes care of that, and Project Rachel will refer people to priests who are prepared to spend a little bit more time with women who are familiar with the issue and who can talk about it with them. If they want a referral to go meet with a priest privately, that can be done. Um, one of the important things, though, is to remember no judging. And this is a group of women that are extremely sensitive. They expect judgment. They're judging themselves very harshly. You heard some of the things they said. So you have to be very careful so that they know no judging. Anytime I do a press release about an abortion recovery program, we tell them these are non-judgmental counselors. Some of the peer counselors have been through this. They've had abortions. This is going to be a supportive environment where there is no judging. And you really kind of have to say that twice. They need to know there is no judging. If you go to the website of the Abortion Recovery International Network, she's got a big sign on one of her pages saying this is a no judging zone. So again, we want to make clear, and that's the approach that Jesus took, and that's actually the scripture that we start with in Rachel's Vineyard. We talk about what are your fears about being judged, who's judged you, are you judging yourself, and we read that story. The men are there with their rocks, and we have a rock, and we say, you know, it might have been a rock just like this one, but Jesus wrote something in the dirt, and they all went away, and so we talk about what is it to have, you know, to have that happen in your life, and so um, we just need to remember that uh, to put the stones down. 
In the Gospel of Life, most people are unfamiliar with this. I don't know whether you all have heard of this. In paragraph 99, that's actually included in the Catholic Rachel's Vineyard. And I think this is important. I've read this at Mass. If they give me two minutes to speak at a Mass, I will read this, and there's a little bit more that goes with it. But Pope John Paul II said, I would now like to say a special word to women who've had an abortion. The Church is aware of the many factors which may have influenced your decision. And she does not doubt that in many cases, it was a painful and even shattering decision. The wound in your heart may not yet have healed, but do not give in to discouragement and do not lose hope. The Father of mercies is ready to give you his forgiveness and his peace in the sacrament of reconciliation. So that's handed out to women at the Catholic Rachel's Vineyard. And I think that if we ever speak about abortion, there's nothing more important you could say than this to Catholic women, because it says it all. It also goes on, actually, to say, um, you know, to give some reassurance about God's care for the baby. And it gives hope that the women who have had the abortions will be one of the most eloquent witnesses for life. And I think that's very important. They're not like, oh, well, you're second-class citizens. Okay, you're not going to hell, but... You know, um, you can take a back seat at church because we know that you've done this, so just prepare that, you know, you know you're not going to be able to teach Sunday school or anything because you're one of those bad women. But no, you're going to be one of the most eloquent witnesses for life. And the reality is that many, many, many of the women who are running post-abortion ministries, who are running every kind of post-abortion ministry, who are leading Rachel's Vineyard, who are going as missionaries and taking Rachel's Vineyard to other countries, um, who are working for pro-life think tanks, a lot of the women are women who've had abortions, but they have, they have come to be healed. They have lost their shame. In some cases, they speak publicly about their abortion. In some cases, they choose not to. And both decisions are good decisions for the women who make those decisions. There are outreach, there are grassroots outreaches. One is Silent No More, which is a partnership between um, Priests for Life, which is Catholic, and Anglicans for Life. But they're encouraging women who want to to speak publicly so that other women are warned who are getting maybe they're not fully getting some informed consent just to say look i had some problems and so that you know to think about that but also if you have had these problems and you haven't gotten help yet look at me i went through all this but i can tell you there is help available you don't have to live with that guilt the rest of your life so they're they're making a statement by choice for other women and there's not only Silent anymore. there's another group called Operation Outcry, which is associated with Justice Foundation, which was the parent organization for that um, Center Against Forced Abortion. They're doing that, and their women are active with that. And they have a prayer network. They will pray for women who are in a situation where they're being threatened with forced abortion. So they're doing a lot of good things. So these women, as the Pope predicted, it was prophetic, they are the most eloquent witnesses for life, whether or not sometimes you know they're post-abortive. I'm not. But there are many women, many women in the pro-life movement, some speak about it, some don't, but they're there and they're giving back. They're trying to help others. So, um, yeah, like the woman at the well who told everyone she knew about Jesus, that's what these women do. They're on fire and they are out there. They're doing good things. And sometimes it's just, as the Pope said, it might be just a very quiet thing. Maybe they adopt a child or maybe they take a special needs child or it's just a quiet word to somebody who's in trouble at the right moment when they're trying to make a decision. And um, so, but they're, they're giving back in every manner of, you know, all different ways. So reconciliation with child, that is so important. And their prayer cards, this is from the Family Life Council. 
and this is a, a Slovakian sculptor who made this to show what many women experience, that they do experience. They're grieving and they, you know, they, they're thinking that child is lost forever, but that child is in some sense in God's care and extending forgiveness and probably praying for the mother. Um, so naming the baby is usually helpful for any time of pregnancy loss, any, whatever it is, if they've lost a baby, naming the baby is a good thing. And at Rachel's Vineyard, we have um, like a, a crystal bowl and they will light a candle for their child and name their child during the weekend. They also light candles not only when they name, but at the memorial service. Um, they use grief dolls. At Rachel's Vineyard, they use grief dolls to help focus their grief and they will write a letter to the children they've lost and just to express their feelings. And there is research, um, not specifically about abortion, but there was a study in the Journal of the American Medical Association that showed that when you're writing about your feelings, that that helps in your emotional recovery for you know a variety of things. And the grief dolls are kind of a standard thing for many grief counselors. So they have a doll, and usually the dolls that we make, they're actually they're not all the colors like in the picture. Usually we'll just use like a white silky kind of fabric and some lacy stuff like a little bunting, and they don't have faces so that you can project and think, oh, it would have looked like my mom, or maybe blue eyes like my boyfriend or whatever. So you can kind of think about that, but use it to help focus your grief. Then during the memorial service, they have the opportunity to bring the doll representing their child to place it at the altar to symbolically entrust their child to the care of God. And they also will have the opportunity to read the letter that they've written to express their grief. Um, for any woman with any pregnancy loss, keepsakes and mementos connected to this child are really important. So when a child is stillborn, there is an article about that, because I was thinking we might have nurses here and stuff. Um, photographs are very helpful for the woman and her family, and photographs can be encouraged. With the women who've miscarried or had abortions, they don't have that. You don't have the opportunity for a photo, but um, there are keepsakes that we give out at Rachel's Vineyard. This woman is one who does speak publicly and has, at the state level and actually internationally, she's spoken about her abortion, but she was on one of my Rachel's Vineyard retreats, and that's the rose that she was given at her Rachel's Vineyard. She keeps it pressed in her grandmother's Bible, and that's very meaningful to her. And she donated the photo specifically to be used. I just say that we don't just take pictures and put them around, but she donated her picture to be used, and she does speak about her abortion. And so also at Rachel's Vineyard, we usually give people an angel, and it's not that their baby is an angel, but just to, you know, that sense of God looking after, maybe the angel looking after their child. Um, but it's important to have some kind of positive memento so they have positive thoughts instead of, you know, thinking about maybe not-so-nice images of remains that they would have seen. Um, and this is another example of a keepsake. This is available through Elizabeth Ministry International. They give resources for miscarriage, stillbirth, and abortion recovery. And flowers are used in abundance at Rachel's Vineyard. And these are silk flowers from Elizabeth Ministry, uh, probably more for miscarriage there, but either way. Um, the one story from the Gospel I want to tell you would be when Jesus, when the little children were brought to Jesus and the disciples said, no, 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 he's very important, keep him away, he's busy, no babies. And Jesus said, no, let the little children come to me. It said, Scripture says he was indignant and he wanted the children to come to him. And women can consider now, if Jesus, when he was a man, would not let anyone get between him and the children, now that in Catholic faith, Catholics believe that he is at the right hand of his father, who is there who would keep him from looking after the children? So I think scripture gives us, aside from any other consideration, scripture gives us a basis 
to have a reasonable expectation that Jesus is looking after the children. Um, Cry Without a Voice is one that conducts baby shoe memorials. And for some women where maybe they don't go out to a retreat, but they see a table at a shopping mall and they look and like, oh my goodness, and they remember their abortion and they can write a little message or a little statement of love, like, oh my dear baby, you know, whatever is in their heart. They can write something down and they use those shoes. And some Protestants in some of their Bible studies, they use these as part of their memorial for their baby. So just something that reminds them of the child in a positive way. There are, this is for a memorial garden for miscarried babies. This one is for um, aborted or miscarried babies, any pregnancy loss for the unborn. And um, many churches and organizations are sponsoring that sort of thing. And some women do it as individuals. They want to have a memorial garden. If it's a miscarriage, it's probably more acceptable to do that and put a sign up about it. But um, women who've had abortions also have done this. But you don't have to necessarily have the sign, but to plant a garden or plant a tree that's in memorial of that child that was lost or make a work of art. Forgiving others. Um, that's a key thing if there were people who hurt you in connection with that abortion and it may be needed within families and marriages due to their involvement in the abortion but if the boyfriend was violent or a family was abusive then maybe you need to forgive without reconciling that relationship you don't have to let them back into your life but it frees you and then reconciling with self um, over the process of being able to share with other people talk about it go through the other steps and moving forward into your giving back phase, as well as the phase of, of being nourished by reconnecting with church, people will reconcile with themselves and lose their shame. And that can be a little bit ongoing. We start to plan for that on the weekend. What things will you do in the future to grow? And what do you need for your ongoing support? But they become that new creation. And so the last thing that I'm getting to, with women who have a poor prenatal diagnosis and they believe that the child will not live long after birth because of genetic defect, there's a book out now called A Gift of Time. And really the time is a gift for them. People can say, oh no, you need to get that abortion and get that done right away and then, then you can have another baby. Well, the women don't want another baby. That's a bad thing to say because it's like they want that baby. And, they need, and, and the thing is if they carry the pregnancy to term, they have a better experience. They get to hold that baby at the end and give them all the love they have even if it's only for 20 minutes. They get to have a photo and a keepsake and they know that they did everything. It wasn't themselves taking their child's life. So the book kind of gives more on that, how you can help and um, for the women themselves, the families. And so I put in the slides, I, and they use the term life-limiting diagnosis. Um, in Ireland, there's a move to stop using the words. They, they used to say, um, well, they have a diagnosis that's incompatible with life. But now the women feel that's offensive because, well, their baby's alive right now, so they say it's a life-limiting diagnosis, and they're trying to change the language. Um, but web-based resources, one of the things I read said, if you're helping women, like it was a nursing, I think it was, a, yeah, neonatal nursing journal, they said, don't just randomly say, oh, go search online, you'll find something. Give them the specific websites that you think will be helpful. So think about that. Make notes of the things you find that are helpful, but I've given you some, I think in the handout that Dr. Borio was giving out, there's a whole page of websites, both some for research and background and some that are helpful for personal healing. Um, but with this one, the article said, you know, be selective and give people what's going to be useful and not make them hunt. So I've included here Elizabeth Ministry and Project Rachel, as well as Rachel's Vineyard. And I don't think I put Elizabeth Ministry on the handout because that was more for abortion. 
for EWTN, and then the Abortion Recovery International Network, that may be on both, but they have a care directory that includes thousands of programs. You can search by zip code and find what's closest to you. And they would list, if Project Rachel wanted to be listed, any of the local Project Rachels could be, although they tend to be more heavy with Protestant or secular than, but pro-life, um, than not so much with the Catholics. Because the Catholics have Project Rachel, that's kind of your one-stop shopping for Catholics. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.